Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Ed Siegel. The story of conglomeration in the United States begins with John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The legal fiction of the corporate trust was invented to facilitate the monopolization of the oil business through vertical integration, as Standard hoovered up not just real estate, drilling operations, and oil refineries, but also the manufacturers of tanker cars, lamp makers, and the railways. Trustification allowed Rockefeller to simultaneously absorb and eliminate his competition by manipulating both distribution costs and market prices. The relocation of Standard's headquarters from Cleveland to New York City signaled that Rockefeller's ambitions were not delimited by oil, but rather the Standard Oil Trust was poised to become an investment bank, a law office, a research and development firm, and of course, a lobbying agency. The edifice at 26 Broadway remained under almost continuous renovation from 1885 to 1911, an emblem of Standard's omnivorous growth. As the building ascended the New York skyline, so too did the office of Henry Huddleston Rogers, Vice President and Chairman of Standard Oil, as well as, from 1894 onwards, Mark Twain's self-described best friend. Rogers joined Standard when his own Pennsylvania-based oil company was one of the final dominoes to fall during Rockefeller's consolidation of the industry. Rogers immediately became part of Rockefeller's inner circle, along with his brother Bill and his son, John Jr., in May of 1908, Twain agreed to appear with all four of them at the Aldine Club, an organization of New York City publishers. The goal of the meeting was to humanize the Rockefellers, who had become prime targets for the muckraking published by members of the Aldine Club. Life magazine, for instance, reliably found humor in imagining the boardroom politics at 26 Broadway. The previous year, it had dedicated almost an entire issue to satiring the wealth, avarice, corruption, and false piety of the Rockefellers and their allies. But at the Aldine Club, as Life's editor John Ames Mitchell put it, he and his peers had been summoned to a coronation to kiss Emperor Rockefeller's feet undisturbed by too many plaudits. Twain was an idol to Mitchell and many of his fellow publishers, a brand unrivaled in American letters during the first decade of the 20th century, and one seemingly undiminished since the Civil War. In nearly every issue, life contributed to the further canonization of Mark Twain. Mitchell recognized that his literary hero was the carrot being offered up by Standard's publicists to help bring the muckrakers to heel. But Mitchell also recognized that there was an implicit stick. Publishers were ripe targets for conglomeration. No member of the Aldine Club could survive if Rogers and Rockefeller chose to attack their financing or their supply chains. But the Aldine Club luncheon was also an acknowledgement of the ambiguity of Standard's succession plan, 
John Sr. was 68 years old with chronic health problems. His brother, co-founder of the company, was only two years younger and accustomed to playing second fiddle. Rogers was not a member of the family, but had as much control over Standard's day-to-day operations as anyone, a fact frequently commented upon by both Twain and the journalists who called him Hellhound. John Jr. was the heir apparent, but subject to personal scandal as well as mockery by those, including Twain, who regarded him as a sickly sapling, starved of any talent or intelligence by living in the shadow of redwoods like his father. As it turned out, the publishers had more backbone than Mitchell expected, and Rockefeller Sr. had more endurance. Standard was broken up a few years later, and the Rockefellers became considerably more wealthy in the process. But John Jr. did not become patriarch of the family business for another 25 years. Standard's New York headquarters had been built in the financial district, indicative of Rockefeller Sr.'s focus on commodities and the mechanisms which brought those commodities to market. John Jr., more clever than Twain realized, turned his attention towards mass media. In the 1930s, the oil company moved its headquarters to Midtown, into a complex of skyscrapers, the Rockefeller Center which John Jr. had designed to serve as an incubator for media conglomeration in mid-century America. The largest of the original buildings in the Rockefeller Center was named for the twin flagship publications of one of its first tenets, Time and Life. John Ames Mitchell's Life magazine had fallen under hard times after his death. Much of the staff defected to the New Yorker when it was launched. The brand and its remaining infrastructure was sold to Henry Luce, publisher of Time, who relaunched life as a pictorial magazine. It was an amplification of the magazine's style under Mitchell, who launched the careers of numerous illustrators, including Norman Rockwell. Luce turned Mitchell's miscellaneous multimedia humor and entertainment magazine into a glossy photographic record of the American century a mythology being perpetuated across not only Time, Inc.'s stable of magazines, but its forays into film, radio, theater, and eventually television. Luce's company was a model tenant at Rockefeller Center, constantly expanding and diversifying, collaborating with and sometimes buying shares in its corporate neighbors. Creators, technicians, and media moguls working throughout the Rockefeller complex intermingled in the bars, restaurants, and nightclubs surrounding it, like the Purple Onion across the street from the Time Life building, where Hal Holbrook debuted the Variety Act, which would become Mark Twain tonight. In 1971, Standard Oil's descendant, ExxonMobil, moved out of the Rockefeller Center to make way for another media conglomerate, Warner Communications. The same year, part of the Time Life building was rented to Sterling Cable, a company owned by Charles Dolan, who was trying to wire Manhattan for cable television. Time Inc. was soon an investor in Sterling, including minority owner of an aspirational pay TV service specializing in regional sports broadcasts and second-run movies. Its placeholder brand name described Dolan's aspiration to sell virtual entry into New York's arenas and cinemas through his cable service, Home Box Office. In 1973, Time Inc. bought out Dolan, who used the windfall to launch his cablevision empire. 
and HBO became Time Inc.'s first cable television subsidiary. Over the next two decades, HBO would grow into one of Time's most valuable assets, and the one which most directly justified its merger with fellow Rockefeller Center tenant, Warner Communications, to form Time Warner Media in 1990. It was the second of the many major mergers and acquisitions episodes in HBO's corporate history, the most recent of which took place just last year. On this, the sixth season of The American Vandal, our topic will be HBO, its path from pulp pay TV purveyor of prize fighting and softcore pornography to the most prestigious brand of the streaming era. HBO has conglomeration in its DNA, a fact that manifests in its programming, as the transfer of power by inherited wealth, corporate law, and palace intrigue plays out in distressed mergers, hostile takeovers, and succession plots across all varieties of HBO originals, from prestige dramas like The Sopranos and Game of Thrones, to star-driven dramedies like Entourage and Ballers, to feature-length Emmy bait like Elizabeth One or Too Big to Fail. But never has this facet of HBO's brand identity been more front and center than in its current tentpole drama, Succession, which has won 13 Emmys in three seasons and been nominated for dozens more, and which broadcasts its obsession with media conglomeration in every episode, populated by thinly disguised avatars of contemporary brands, especially Rupert Murdoch's News Corps. In this episode, I'll be talking with a pair of scholars about succession, but also about the critical problem of corporate authorship. There is a loose ideological and aesthetic coherence across HBO originals dating back at least two decades. But to whom do we attribute agency when the writers, the showrunners, the executives, and even the parent companies have changed several times in that span? Lisa Siraganian is Associate Professor and J.R. Herbert Boone Chair in the Humanities, as well as Chair of the Department of Comparative Thought and Literature at Johns Hopkins University. She is a scholar of law and literature, and her most recent book is Modernism and the Meaning of Corporate Persons. Also pertinent to our discussion today is her article for America Studien, Distributing Agency Everywhere, TV Critiques, Post Critique. Michael Zalay is Professor of English and Director of the Culture and Capital Center at University of California, Irvine. He is currently working on his third book about HBO, and prequels to that work have appeared in Representations, Journal of American Studies, Los Angeles Review of Books, and the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. For more about our guests and a bibliography of works related to this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash succession. Of a company pin, cause you know where that'll get you to. I don't go fishing off the company pin. There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell. Nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell. The, the question I wanted to lead with it matters for our discussion of HBO, uh, both in this episode and throughout the season that we're launching with this episode. And, and the question stated succinctly is, why does corporate authorship matter? Uh, both of you are engaged in studying what Lisa calls the puzzle of collective intention. And the primary aggregator of that collect collective intention 
is presumably the corporation. As I can testify following a discussion of theories of collective authorship in my class earlier this week, it is not immediately and abundantly clear to many of my students why we should care who gets credit or blame for a cultural product, where agency resides in the processes of creation and production and mediation and so forth. Why do you think agency and authorship remain important? whether we're talking about novels and poems or film and television? I mean, the thanks, it's a good question. I'm, I'm a little surprised that your students were, were questioning that, but, but I hear you. I guess I would begin by saying part of why we're interested in, why I'm interested in it, is that so much of the cultural work we're now engaged with is... It, one way or another, produced by the corporation or under the auspices of, of different kinds of corporate entities. So on a very simple level, we're dealing with corporations all the time, and we're dealing with their cultural products all the time. So that's sort of the first part of the question of why we should care about them. But the second part is actually about whether we should care about intention and meaning at all. And that's a different question. <laughs> and I think we'll get into that maybe... Um, as this conversation develops, but I guess I would say on, a, on the most basic levels that if we're interested in the ambitions of art objects, broadly stated at all, if we're interested in them as ambitious things beyond their status as commodities or in addition to their status as commodities, then I do think we can't help but be invested in these questions of agency and intention. But I, I'll just leave that as my opening gambit. <laughs> That's a great question, Matt. And, you know, it may turn out to be the case as our conversation evolves today that we, each of us, mean something slightly different by corporate authorship. And so it's a little tough right at the start to to say why it matters. But just to second something Lisa said, there's, there is at least for me an inherent interest in figuring out how a group of people, uh, sometimes upwards of hundreds of people working together under a particular set of fiscal constraints end up meaning collectively in ways that isn't quite reducible to any of the particular agents involved. So there there are kind of more or less theoretical questions about how collective action can be understood intentionally, as Lisa was saying. It's also the case just more locally that Sometimes you, you can't fully understand why narratives take the form that they do, why stories emerge as they do, unless you understand how they've been pressurized by a particular corporate context, how that particular corporate context has mediated stories in sometimes visible and in sometimes invisible ways. So it's a way of adding just another layer of richness to how we understand what we're seeing on the screen. And maybe the last thing I'll just say by way of starting us off is that, you know, your students are right or might be right to the extent that it's it's not clear how it matters. That is to say, I think Lisa and I are both committed to the idea that it's there, that, that corporate um, entities do intend collectively, that what we watch is indeed shaped in sometimes very particular ways by the particular media companies and studios that are making them. But whether that matters you know, like, say, in a pressingly political way, for example. That's open for debate, and that's one of the things that 
I'm really interested in when we talk about succession, uh, you know, it's like openly or avowedly political show. And the question is, does it matter at all that it's made by HBO versus another studio? The answer to that's not obvious to me. Well, wow, there's, yeah, there's a lot I want to unpack there, but maybe we should get to the text that we agreed upon as this object of interrogation, and that will help us sort of tease out some of, uh, some of these questions. When we were having the, the sort of pre-show discussion a few weeks ago in our correspondence, Lisa mentioned that she thinks Succession is the closest thing TV has yet done to a biography of the contemporary corporate person. And so I, I think let's start, Lisa, with you. Will you expound on that, right? What, what do you mean by succession as a biography of contemporary corporate personhood? Of course, yeah. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to watch all three seasons of Succession again, which I just finished. It was it was hard, but it was wonderful. No, it was actually completely delightful. You know, I was thinking about this in part because I think Succession works a little bit like Richard Powers's novel Gain, which I you know talked about at the end of my last book, where in that novel, Powers is weaving together the story of this individual woman dying of cancer with the story of a company that initially starts as a family business, much like Waystar Royco, and then eventually becomes a multinational conglomerate. And as it grows, the life stories and beliefs of its owners become less identified with the company and the, the company's intentions also transform. And I think in the way Succession is playing off different genres, and I hope we get a chance to talk about this a little bit more, but such that you have someone like Logan Roy, you know, the patriarch, nearly functioning in a different genre than someone like Cousin Greg, right? So you have like Logan Roy seeing himself as a King Lear, as a, as a tragic figure, archetypal and the producers have talked about him as archetypal whereas you see cousin greg who's definitely in the mode of comedic satire right he belongs in curb your enthusiasm with the way you're seeing these different characters and different genres played off one another you also see the show working out a similar kind of problem that say richard powers gain is working out that is what is this thing they are a part of this thing called waystar royco and how does it function it started as a family business, right? A, a limited partnership where everyone was going to have an equal stake and also equal responsibility and liability for all the actions they do. But that's not Waystar Royco anymore, right? Now it is essentially, essentially it's a holding company that is still majority controlled by the family, but not entirely controlled by the family. What the drama and the brilliance of the show is, it's those moments where you see the characters trying to negotiate why they're acting and for whom. Is it for their family and their marital commitments? Is it for the love of the business and the wealth it will bring them? Repeatedly, the show brings out these moments in their full discomfort. And in this way, you're starting to see, I think, something like the reality of, of the corporate person today and the kind of Bildungsroman of the, of the corporate person. You're seeing it that it still has these remnants of the human personality and the dynamics of the older kinds of companies and corporations it started from at the same time you're seeing you know the full sadism and psychopathy of what you know logan roy and his various minions are going to generate and make waystar royco into so that's sort of my approach to succession but i hope we can go into some of those details too and i would love to hear what michael thinks about um this reading or any kind of reading of succession as well 
I'm, I'm so excited to talk about succession and the family business because I've been thinking a lot about family businesses these days in TV. I thought as a way into that conversation and just to kind of riff off of some of the things Lisa started to say about genre, we could play like a really short parlor game. Because I think it's fundamentally right, as Lisa said, to as we watch Succession, to kind of think about what genres it's playing off of. I mean, genres, it, genre is obviously not a corporation, but it's another way of kind of collectivizing objects and asking what they share, and even sometimes of attributing agency. Genres kind of constrain us, and they constrain cultural producers in the same way that corporations do. Okay, so here, here's the little parlor game. I'm just going to read you a quick description of a TV show, and you can tell me what TV show this is. An aging white patriarch oversees a vast empire under threat from the forces of progress. He's the last of a dying breed, a dinosaur among lesser creatures. Though fantastically rich, he fancies himself a blue-collar guy. And while conservative to the core, he'll do anything, including ally with enemies to protect his empire, whose core business is branding. He's whisked about in black helicopters and SUVs and has a secret tryst with a powerful woman who furthers his ambitions. He cannot rely on his dysfunctional kids. He has three sons and one daughter, each born to a mom no longer around. The daughter, a redhead, drinks too much, uses sex as a weapon, and sleeps with one of her father's employees who commits crimes and and cover-ups on dad's behalf. The same employee delights in sadistically torturing a younger man newly employed by the family. Only two of the three sons really matter. One closeted wants, but never gets his father's approval. The other straight fights the dad at every turn, but the dad loves him all the more because of it and in his own twisted way sets out to destroy him. Okay, so what TV show is that? Uh, Okay, just because succession seems too obvious, I'm going to go with Game of Thrones. <laughs> There's some overlap. But, All right, you know, I've got, I got my guess. It is a new show that HBO will be producing <laughs> called yes. Donald Trump: The Second Term. <laughs> well, no, I mean, come on. I was hoping one of the two of you would say Succession, right? It is Succession. <laughs> no, right. I haven't hoped. <laughs> but it, it is also down to a T, Yellowstone. Absolutely, absolutely. So Lisa rewatched all three seasons of Succession for this podcast, and she's going to be much better prepared than me. I, I went off on a tangent and watched Yellowstone when I when I saw that it is exactly identical in almost every respect, except kind of tone, wit, and some of the kind of subtle niceties that we'll talk about from Succession. They're the, they are the same show. And they're the same show in part because they both descend from a 1956 melodrama by Douglas Sirk called Written on the Wind. And in many respects, they're the same show also as Dallas and Dynasty and a show like Empire more recently. They're all shows about family businesses, as Lisa said. And I guess the question we might ask ourselves is, does it matter that it's an HBO show and that Yellowstone is a Paramount show? I don't know, but it's certainly a a familiar genre, and it's been common to TV since the evening soaps like Dallas and Dynasty since the 80s. And another thing that I have noticed in getting prepared to teach this course 
in HBO's own catalog, this issue of succession crops up over and over again. Many people have made the, the plot comparisons between Game of Thrones and Succession that are both airing right now. But if you look back to things like Silicon Valley and Entourage and Ballers, not necessarily the most prestige shows in HBO's catalog, but there's oftentimes a transfer of power, oftentimes that takes place in a boardroom, an attempted hostile takeover, a proxy fight, the transference of the CEO position that leads to the drama within the series. And so HBO does seem to have some degree of fixation upon this transference of power within a corporate dynamic. But I do take your point that maybe that's more and more common throughout what you have called quality television, Michael. Another show that I do watch is Billions, and we recently saw a takeover happening there as well. I, I guess the question you're raising for us is, are we culturally fixated on the paths of succession for the wealthy in a way that is particular to the contemporary in some way? Are, are these set of questions beyond HBO somehow rooted in how the corporation has changed over the 50, 75 years. The points that both of you are making are really excellent. And, and it makes me think about a longer history of this genre that might also help clarify some of both what makes Succession so enticing, but also what makes all of these shows enticing. And if you think about, as Michael has talked about, the, you know, the family drama is clearly so much of what we're seeing in streaming television and prestige television. I see it as first coming out of the Victorian novel, right, which is self-development of Bildungsroman, which you know, think of Dickens, you think of Trollope, you think of novels very much invested in questions of business and family life. Also, and I'm so glad Michael brought up the evening soap operas, because I think that is also hugely important for what we're watching now, largely following these long-running soap opera models, but with the added cultural capital of extremely high production values and a more explicit business story built in. But, you know, as I was thinking about this podcast, I also thought, you know, maybe really the model of all of these many seasons, endless seasons of shows like Succession and Billions is Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans being a history of a family's progress. I mean, I realize that sounds far-fetched, but, you know, think about what she's doing there. The point is that it's a family that's on the make. It can go on forever, right? It's like 950 pages long, but in a serious way. It's better than the Bildungsroman because the Bildungsroman was always delimited by a single person's life and death, by their situation and perspective. But, you know, if you think about succession, this is really kind of what succession is giving us. I mean, it's obviously the the tone is different. The genre is slightly different. But in terms of producing a kind of machine for creating more pages, creating more hours of television, you know, Gertrude Stein might not be a bad model for what this is. I'm giving you a way to connect this to Twain, American literature. <laughs> I was literature. about to say, I, I was going to see if Michael wanted to tease at the modernist angle. But yeah, my immediate thought as you were talking about that was, 
uh, you know, HBO happens to be airing something called The Gilded Age right now. And it in many ways resembles the characteristics of a family drama that Michael laid out in his parlor game. We have questions of succession and the passing on of new wealth, the belonging within a sort of bourgeois culture and the gender roles that are associated with that. It appears, at least superficially, to only be taking its name from Twain's novel. Certainly the characters are different, but many of the concerns are similar. The progress of new wealth and the attempt to make one's name within the dynamics of a deeply inegalitarian society that is also producing capital at a rate heretofore unseen, right? So again, it, it feels as though HBO is taking this model and just inserting it into different times and places, but with many of the same concerns revisited over and over again. In the Gilded Age, the HBO series, the industrialist is however, not treated in any way satirically, if my memory is right. right. Yeah, I haven't seen the whole series, but certainly in the episodes that I saw, he, he was held up as a kind of Horatio Alger, ragged yeah. dick kind of figure. Or maybe Philip Sterling, if The Gilded Age was written just by Charles Dudley Warner and not Charles Dudley Warner and Mark Twain. So one of the reasons I, I brought up Yellowstone, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much not prestige TV as academics and critical outlets talk about it. It's it's an avowedly conservative show, or at least its appeal is ostensibly to conservative audiences. But what struck me in seeing its similarities with Succession is that it's an interesting kind of test case for how two shows that are kind of narratively almost on a point-by-point basis in terms of characters and family relations, identical, how and if it matters at all that they're produced by these different studios. It once seems avowedly liberal. HBO is kind of famously liberal and attached to the Democratic Party. Whereas Yellowstone has been a kind of taken up in many ways by the disaffected right. One of the things that strikes me about what Lisa said, I mean, talking about family corporations and family capitalism, almost every significant prestige TV show of note of the last 20 years has been about some form of family business. Family businesses that naturalize labor hierarchies and personalize property relations. Family businesses that would typically file their taxes as S-Cores rather than C-Cores. Lisa knows way more about this stuff than I do, but this suggests that the politics of this larger genre of prestige TV is absolutely tied up with what Melinda Cooper recently identifies as the family business insurrection. There's no way of understanding Trump and the resurgence of right-wing populism, she says, except insofar as it has pitted private, unincorporated, family-based companies and family-based capitalism against corporate, publicly traded, shareholder-owned C-corporations. And I am just struck by how much of the TV that we critically celebrate is at bottom, not only simply about family businesses, but are in a sense part and parcel of this larger family business insurrection that Cooper describes. And to that extent, to go back to the question, Matt, that you asked us on behalf of your students, I don't know that it matters as much as we think it matters, that succession feels like a searingly liberal critique 
of a very, very conservative family of Rupert Murdoch, in fact, and that Yellowstone seems unabashedly conservative in its depiction of its family business. I think there's a way in which those differences matter a lot less than we think they do. I'm a little bit surprised that you are making this argument about the sort of flattening of the prestige TV networks, given the arguments you have made in the past about HBO's brand being so central to its strategy, to the the point of being more important even than things like the profit model, right? That there is a kind of money-making apparatus associated with the HBO brand, and certainly when you read some of the corporate histories, you see executives mentioning this over and over again, the putting the brand first. As you have shown, Michael, in, in something like Game of Thrones, the prioritization of brand plays out in the competition between the families and the in insignias and the mottos and the various ways in which each of those houses are branding themselves much as HBO does. So I'm curious to know, do you think that the emergence of the family business model of prestige television is something that is compromising HBO's brand equity, its individuation from amongst the other platforms that it is competing with, platforms now at one time networks? No, not compromise. I mean, I don't I don't even think it contradicts it in certain ways. I mean, these these shows and these studios and these streaming services, they absolutely do brand themselves. And there absolutely are ways in which we can talk about how succession is recognizably an HBO show. HBO has been interested in making had wanted to make a show about Rupert Murdoch and his family for well over a decade. David Milch wrote a pilot for just such a show. And they were interested in making that show for very particular reasons, having to do with a longstanding battle between Murdoch's News Corps and what was then Time Warner. So nothing that I'm saying kind of obviates that level of mediation and the studio's own interest in making a show that fits within their stable of shows. I'm simply saying that if we zoom out for one level, there is a striking commonality in so much of the TV that we watch, whether they are what I call them in a book that's coming out, black market melodramas, whether they are black market melodramas like Breaking Bad and Ozark and The Sopranos, or whether they're corporate melodramas, corporate family melodramas like Succession or Empire, that they are all about family businesses. And that's striking, I think. That's striking given the kind of political significance that the family business has come to play in the political landscape of the last many years. And so, no, I mean, I I don't think that commitment to the family business model contravenes the kind of interest in corporate authorship that brings us together here today. I think it kind of sits alongside it and even atop of it in some respects. You brought up Melinda Cooper. As you said, the family unit as a a way of explaining revisionary politics that happens starting in the late 20th century, and certainly we are seeing the results of it in the in the Trump era, but also that part of that process was a confusion of labor and finance, right? And that does strike me as, as integral to any conversation about the corporation 
more generally, but also about some of the shows on HBO where how wealth is accumulated, how value is accumulated, and then how it is transferred is something that is constantly a source of angst and urgency, and particularly the question of inheritance, what labor is involved, what value is involved in the transfer of wealth from one generation to the next. Those are clearly questions that Cooper thinks are, are sort of crucial to our understanding of the last half century, particularly of American politics, and are also all over these shows. And I do wonder if that also is one of the reasons why we care so much about authorship and agency. Is it to some extent because we are looking for a way to make visible the labor? Who is producing the value for this corporation, right? Is it its executive team protecting the brand? Is it its creators doing the, the labor of writing and acting and sound editing and so on and so forth? Does the corporation disguise the value of intellectual labor, which was something that Twain was always deeply concerned of? I kind of want to ask Lisa a question that, that bears on what you're saying, but maybe frames it in a slightly different way. And that is, so Lisa, you said that part of your interest in succession is that it's a business that starts out as a family business, but that kind of evolves into something much more impersonal. And one way of talking about creative agency with shows like this is always in terms of their showrunner or their creator, whether it's, you know, Adam McKay or Jesse Armstrong. And they're often also in turn about a kind of central patriarch who is able to outthink and outsmart those around him. That patriarch ends up being kind of the one responsible for the, the only one who can do what he does. You know, Breaking Bad, the only one who can make the, the crystal meth that way. Soprano, the only one who can hold, hold the crew together. I heard Lisa speak kind of beautifully about the ways in which these shows frame moments where attention can't really be accounted for in terms of any of the particular agents within a particular scene. And Succession seems really interesting that way, because on the one hand, you've got this kind of old guy who maybe stands in for as a figure for shows creators, for the kind of singular person who can do what no one else does. But then there's also this kind of corporate structure around him that seems to absorb responsibility, decision-making. In other words, there seems to be these two accounts in a lot of these shows between a singular vision in action and a kind of collective vision in action. And Lisa, I know that's something that's really interesting to you. It's, it's a way of getting at what Matt's asking us. Yeah. No, those are both, those are such great questions. Thank you for posing them in that way. And, you know, maybe I was sort of thinking about this when Matt was speaking, that if you think about why we're interested in something like succession, the kinds of questions I'm interested in, for example, have to do with, you know, the music. You know, I have become kind of obsessed with what's going on in succession with its music. This is like Greg Bertel's music. It's it's gorgeous, right? It's a kind of faux classical. It has won awards. It's extraordinary. But it is also in a disturbing kind of contrast with uh, the action often, right? You often will have these like gorgeous string uh, serenades and then you'll have like the banality of like Roman sending a dick pic to his dad accidentally, right? And the bathos of the one versus the high level of cultural capital of the other. Part of what I'm interested in when I'm looking at these shows is that there's a reason someone made that choice to make the music that way in relationship to everything else that's going on in that show. There's a set of decisions. 
clearly Jesse Armstrong is key to it, for example, as, as Michael was saying. Like he brought in Bertel very early. They knew they wanted this mu music to work in that way. Thinking more about it, I have to think that part of what's going on with the music is a way of extending Logan's reign without having the show take on too much of the weight of tragedy. So to go back to what Michael was saying, in order to keep it within that valence of satire, you don't want to add more characters to the show that would be complicating or equals of Logan, right? There's no one who's an equal of Logan. Lucas Matson, Sandy Furness, Stewie, Hosseini, none of these are equals of Logan, Roy. But the music ends up being another character, not fighting him. It's a character that is extending his his view of life throughout the show. Part of what I why I'm sort of talking about this maybe for too long, is that I think that when we're producing these kinds of readings of Succession or any other show, we are reading something that had to have been intended and meant. Now, the question is, if there's something there to interpret, there's something there that was intended to be interpreted. The question with the corporation, with these corporate productions, is always about how do you make sense of who or what was intending it? And I would say that from the very start, when I first started thinking about this, it was when I was thinking about Ang Lee and James Seamus, who were working together for a long time. This is the piece actually I wrote for Post 45, when Michael was still part of it, and trying to figure out what their close working relationship had to do with the films they were making then. I was happy with where that came down, but I also felt that the real difficulty of the piece had to do with figuring out how knowledge, intention, and action were working in films. Why were they the way they were? Who wanted them to be that way? How did they come to be? This sort of led me to write this longer book about corporate persons and how they mean. And what I think I, I came down to in that book is that the corporation really isn't as stable kind of entity as you might think it is, as we want to think it is. Sometimes it's, it's the kind of thing that acts like a person with intentions and mind and speech. And sometimes it isn't. So sometimes the corporation can mean and speak and create the things, and, and sometimes it cannot. It creates what corporations always create. It creates products and commodities. You know, in my view, that's why I've had more of a ambivalent or skeptical relationship to allegorical readings of films and televisions. It's not that I don't think they can't be right. Some of them are absolutely brilliant. I think, you know, Michael's written brilliant stuff about Game of Thrones. Jerry Christensen's, his account of You Got Mail is still like utterly compelling to me. The problem is that they are not consistently working that way. Corporations aren't consistently meaningful and intentional actors. They're not consistent enough in the way we need them to be to understand their productions as having intentional meaning. Sometimes they can. They don't necessarily have it. I'm absolutely with Lisa on almost everything she said. I mean, clearly someone chooses that music intentionally and for very particular reasons. It's interesting to me. What, what's interesting to me are when choices like that resonate or given a certain amount of extra heft by the dynamics that they are kind of weaponizing. So for example, that music, I think what's so smart about that music choice is that, you know, here we have Rupert Murdoch and Fox News thinly displaced and allegorized. And the story of Rupert Murdoch is in many respects, the story of the transformation of class in the United States, both in the United States and England, in Australia. And part of what's continually getting staged in that music is this kind of jarring 
clash between, on the one hand, this very kind of traditional high cultural set of registers that are activated by the music and this incredibly boorish, brash, all that matters is money, new version of class that's at stake in the kind of Republican Party that Murdoch is helping to bring about. That is absolutely front and center in the plot line in season two, where the family's trying to buy a newspaper that's kind of a, a hybrid of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, just as Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal after having failed many times to buy the New York Times. So that's allegorical. That's not allegorical in a particular corporate way. That's allegorical of class relations, but it's also intentionally so, I would say. There are moments where something like that could feel allegorical insofar as it activates HBO-specific registers, whether in relationship to the ways that HBO has used music and other shows. What I think I want to agree with, especially in that Lisa said, is that these allegories, they're never like so consistent that everything that happens in a show can be explained by way of self-branding or even class relations. These shows are as uneven and inconsistent as Lisa says corporations can be. Matt, the reason I said earlier that there's no real contradiction between like HBO's branding and the kind of class relations I was pointing to with the emergence of the family business, for example, is that they are kind of uneasy amalgams of multiple contradictory mediations sometimes that are working in different ways and at cross purposes. They are never so perfectly self-coherent that we can't identify any number of things going on in them at once. I mean, especially with TV, which is done under time constraints to produce just more and more over time. They are not one thing consistently or coherently. Now, does that make them kind of commodities rather than artworks in the manner of non-site? No, I think that's kind of a fatuous distinction. And Lisa and I will probably argue till the cows come home about that one. Um, but certainly it's a distinction that, that would apply only really uneasily to most serialized TV, prestige or not, quality or not. So I, I, agree, I agree with pretty much everything Lisa said. My particular interest is in seeing how these different kinds of allegories sit on top of each other and mediate each other. That is to say how HBO as a particular kind of studio facing its own particular constraints mediates more generalized class dynamics and economic dynamics. One's not in contradiction with the other. One is a mediation of the other. So Yellowstone and Succession can be incredibly different, but also studio-specific mediations of a more general, generic interest in family businesses. They might very much display the, the characteristics of the studios that made them or the streaming services that streamed them and yet still participate in a larger generic formation that is itself an expression of ongoing forms of class conflict. I'm interested in when those things sit atop of each other and mediate each other. Just to add to what Michael is saying that might be helpful is if you can think about corporations, like almost from a Wittgensteinian perspective, which is that you don't want to make the mistake of thinking every corporation is alike because its corporate bylaws are alike. There's much more variation there. What's critical is not that the corporation is the cause of a film's or television's meaning. Nothing can be a cause of a meaning. That's 
to think that cause is connected to meaning is to not understand what meaning is, but that if a corporation can be meaningful, then it could create intended films or intended TV. You know, what I hear also Michael saying is that all corporations are at this point the necessary causal conditions of major TV or films today. That's what you need to do. Those are the conditions. Those are the conditions of the aesthetic object we're looking at or whatever the thing is we're looking at. We don't want to call it aesthetic. Of the object we're looking the cultural object we're looking at. That's the necessary condition. That's a nice way of putting it. Things. And then there's a lot more work that needs to be done before you go from that position to whatever the music and succession means. And I, I completely love Michael's point about the changing of the cultural capital of the, of the music with Murdoch's rise. It's also like the the music is characteristically HBO to the extent that HBO has long been the kind of Mandarin. I mean, it's silly in a way to talk about high culture versus low culture when it comes to streaming services and studios. But HBO has its earliest days in Time Inc., the very kind of blue-blooded Time Inc. corporation, not in the kind of scrappy Jewish Warner Brothers studios. And that carries through from its earliest programming to the extent that when you hear that music, I mean, you're also kind of listening to HBO send up the kind of low cultural foolishness of someone like Fox, uh, someone like Murdoch, although, I mean, Fox TV is probably best TV around in the last many years. But so much of Succession reads, so much of its wit, its irony, its satire, and its dark humor depends upon this kind of knowingness with which it can have two things at once. It can kind of get down in the mud with the Roys and enjoy in the kind of crassness of their behavior, but also adopt these kind of high tones and step back and be kind of archly distant and ostensibly critical of them. And it does so as only an HBO production could. It's, it's polished as few productions are. And it's, it is so, so smart and well done. And it really is polished. I guess I started with Yellowstone in part just because there's a way in which I think we flatter ourselves if we make too much of that polish. If we get too lost in the fine distinctions between a show like Succession and Yellowstone, we, we learn quite a lot about the different studios that make those shows and the creators that make those shows. But there's also quite a lot to be said about what those shows have in common. And that one's not more right than the other. They just make available to us different kinds of analysis and different kinds of comparison. I do wonder, and I feel like this is something that plays out within Succession itself, as you mentioned, the attempted uh, takeover in season two and the ways in which there are these relatively thinly allegorized real companies that are coming in contact with Royco on a, a regular basis. And we can see this going back in HBO's catalog as well. When Michael was talking earlier about the angst about Fox, I was thinking of a, an episode of Newsroom that I watched recently in preparation for the class in which there is more or less an attempt by Fox to take over the parent company of CNN. And that plays out in the boardroom of CNN for some reason. I wonder, and this is very much coming out of Michael's work, if the moment where we see corporate cultures become unique, right, become, as Lisa said, more than just sharing similar bylaws can have distinct identities. I wonder if 
when we see that is always at moments of mergers, takeovers, acquisitions, that when, when corporations are coming together or you know, attempting to come together, that is when their individuality, for lack of a better term, becomes apparent. And when the sort of contradictions within their cultures become potentially fatal. Right? And I know for Michael's reading of HBO, there, you know, these these are crucial moments. When Time Life takes over, when Warner Brothers joins, when it becomes Time Warmer, when AT&T arrives, and now I assume, although I haven't talked to you about this most recent acquisition of, of Discovery, right, that in each of these moments, right, we see something like a personality that the corporation has through its comparison to another corporation. Is that in some ways what corporate personhood might might look like? Can I just say one thing? When we're talking yeah. about corporate personhood, just for like clar- clarification. Yeah. So, and then Michael, I'll, I'll let you jump in there because I think it's more directed to you. So corporate personhood is just a legal concept, right? So it's just mm-hmm. the legal idea that corporations will be treated uh, as legal persons for the benefit of contracts and owning property and those sorts of things. It's an idea that's been around since the 1890s and was actually pretty stable until really the 1970s at that point, intermixed with neoliberalism that was also getting going and radical con- conservatism where an, and a number of decisions started to connect corporate personhood with more of the First Amendment rights. And so that's when you start getting things like ideas of corporate religious belief and more ideas of corporate free speech. These were ideas that really didn't make a lot of sense before the the 70s and 80s. So when we say corporate person, we're really just talking about something that's actually pretty stable. What you're asking Michael about is something a little different, which is about actually the characteristics of corporations and their branding, which is pretty different than their legal status. Yeah. I I should have stuck with personality more than personhood. Yes. Yeah, no, that's great. That's wonderful, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. Mergers, this goes back to Jerry Christensen's work, which Lisa cited a moment ago. Uh, Mergers are moments when media objects like film and TV can represent, say, compatibility between two merging partners, can demonstrate how and in what way it makes sense, for example, for Disney and Pixar to be together or for AOL and Time Warner to be together or or don't make sense. And in HBO, you're talking about a unit that has long been described as the kind of crown jewel of whatever particular media company it's been in. Those media companies have changed from AOL Time Warner to AT&T to Warner Brothers Discovery. There's a lot at stake for a unit like HBO in continually representing its own distinctiveness, its value to this parent versus that parent, even its importance within a larger uh, set of media holdings within one company. I also think since you mentioned the newsroom, and this is true of succession, that kind of pivotal moments like presidential elections matter a great deal as well. One of the reasons you have to imagine that HBO is making a show like Succession is that it wants to be able to offer a kind of running commentary on the very real life succession within News Corps. It wants to be able, it it wants to have a platform to speak to the succession dynamics within that competing company. And Succession is also about a presidential election, right? And, and it is even now in season three, you know, we see the Roy's nominally picking the, the, the Republican nominee. There's a kind of fantasy getting played out there as to how media companies pick 
presidential nominees. And just as you make Silicon Valley because you want a kind of beachhead in or a platform for speaking to and about a changing Silicon Valley in Northern California, if you're if you're HBO, so too you make a show like Succession because it's giving you a platform that over many years allows you to internalize, dramatize, frame, and change the conversation in some way about an industry or a power dynamic that immediately abuts upon the interests of your unit. Now, does that mean that like Jesse Armstrong and Adam McKay, that that's all they're doing? No, but it means that in the ongoing conversations between the show's creators and the studio, this stuff's in the air. And the really kind of savvy insiders like Armstrong or like Aaron Sorkin, they know this without having to be told. They know what it means in selling a show to be able to explain to a parent company why their show might be a valuable asset to have moving forward. That's such a great explanation, Michael. And it explains to me some of what I've been grappling with as I look back across HBO's corporate history, and particularly what was one of their brand identities early on, which was we don't do sitcoms. And then when they decided instead of doing sitcoms, they were going to do half hour original programming, but that it was almost all going to be, as you said, industry insider, right? That it was in some ways going to be representing or satirizing the movie business, the film business, the television business, the entertainment business more widely as they also got into to sports. The first wave, Larry Sanders and Arliss and things like that, all the way up through Barry and Curb Your Enthusiasm and Hacks and so on and so forth. Right? Almost every half hour HBO original program is set in LA or New York and is in some ways embedded in the, the film and television or broader entertainment communities that are located there. And that sense in which it's always looking for a way to do some sort of commentary upon the forces which might affect its existence, <laughs> whether those are technology, media, politics, they're looking to some extent extent for a way to anticipate, you know, what's coming, whether it's the streaming wars and Silicon Valley, whether it's the presidential election or the transference of power within News Corp, right? I think it really explains some of the the genre choices to go back to what the question that Lisa raised really early on. Some of the genre choices that HBO has made, particularly, at least recognizably to me, in its half hour programming as opposed to its more prestige tentpole dramas, which are much more expensive. Yeah, that's really interesting. One thing that's kind of tricky about some of these issues, I was just thinking about the question that Michael, I guess, was also raising of that shows like Succession are in some ways trying to make the case for their continued them being picked up like the next season on some level, you know, that's part of what these shows also need to say, that they're also speaking to their corporate owners. One of the things that's particularly tricky is that a lot of these long running television series really shift over the seasons such that they almost become different things. And yet we can have a hard time recognizing them as distinct. The best example of this, it's Netflix's Stranger Things, which was really really smart that first season, really innovative, and is just completely unwatchable schlock. I've tried to watch the latest season. I I couldn't. Even like on the elliptical, I can't watch it. And I think, I fear actually this is happening with Succession too, because I think having just gone back and looked at it again, I'm 
very convinced season one is the strongest and is the most interesting and is really doing the good work of trying to think through what it means to be in a family corporation. I'm pretty sure season two and season three are moving towards soap opera, (laughs) very high end soap opera, but that's where it does seem to be going. That characteristic of streaming shows has made it hard to really analyze our objects. We're used to looking at things that are fairly static for coming out of the lit lit field, but these shows are are much more dynamic than that. Corporations that are making them are dynamic and the things they're making are very dynamic. I think all of that makes our interpreting of them more complicated. Yeah, that, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's also very much the point. I will really quickly just try and defend Stranger Things and say, <laughs> one of the things I realized in watching all of the seasons with my daughter is how savvy that show has been in kind of growing up tonally and generically with its original audience so that like each successive season gets darker this last season veers much more into horror than any of the earlier ones did as those kids get older and as the audience that's watching the show, by and large, not us, is kind of wanting a different kind of entertainment. But actually, I think what Lisa said is fundamentally right. And I think I think in a way that's the point. If you greenlight a show, you're greenlighting a setup or an engine or a machine that can continually go on as long as you need it to in, say, an industry, this industry or that industry. And I think you very much are, and now we're talking about, again from like the, you know, the studio's point of view, you are banking on the fact that the show can pivot in some way that you might need it to. Now, that's not exactly what Lisa means when she says that sometimes these shows get better, sometimes they get worse. And that's, that's just absolutely the case. But it's also the case that unlike when you greenlit a film, a film is a, it's a made thing. It's got a beginning, a middle and an end. And it is what it is. When you greenlight a show, you're greenlighting a premise that you think or you hope can kind of continue on with sufficient variation and nuance. And to some extent, you want it to be adaptable to contingency. When you pitch a show, when a showrunner or a creator pitches a show, they have to hand into the studio what's called a Bible. And the Bible has usually the pilot episode and descriptions of all the characters, but then it also just has like examples of how the show can elaborate itself, you know, conceivably endlessly, as a Bible might kind of allow for endless interpretation over the eons. Real Auerbach Bible, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's nice. that seems that seems right and what and you know what you either kind of like or don't like about following this kind of long form tv is that those moments where it does change very visibly become in turn moments to ask why it i mean so if it just gets better or gets worse that's one thing but if the show seems markedly to switch gears or change tones or change its account of the thing that it's representing that that's potentially interesting and that too might be because of particular corporate exigencies that we can figure out good hermeneutics yeah. that we are if you are asking why it's changing there're different kinds of questions you could ask you know i was thinking in terms of netflix's stranger things which okay maybe i will actually have to finish watching its <laughs> 2 hour long episodes now <laughs> i love that Part of what I suspect is happening is that the initial pitches allow these showrunners often to to produce the thing they want to show, right? Produce the thing they want to create. They are actually producing 
I mean, I, you know, we can throw around the term, but I think they are trying to produce something like their aesthetic objects that's going to have meaning. I think then they are allowing them in order to get picked up for future seasons to become something else. And often they are no longer things that we can interpret um, in the same well, no, maybe even things we can interpret. I mean, this is where it gets kind of tricky. I think sometimes there's nothing to interpret with like Stranger Things, you know, season five in terms of okay. any of the things like we're talking about with Succession, for example, with its music. I just, I don't think there are aesthetic things to interpret anymore. So you're talking about okay, uh, but, but, series but Lisa... that maybe in season one are is an art object and by season five is a commodity. And that is something that we as uh, interpreters are not, very comfortable dealing with. That's not something we do when we're dealing with text all the time. Okay, so this is where we have to really roll up our sleeves. And here now we now we're getting into it. Getting into it, Lisa. I guess I just don't see how like a show becoming less aesthetically successful changes the possibility conditions of its interpretation. Now, it's not like I know the arguments for why that might be the case. I just don't buy them. Like it makes perfect sense for me to to me to say. Look, it just becomes less successful. It becomes more potentially incoherent. And to the degree that it becomes incoherent, it may be that we cease to discern in organizing intention behind it. And to that extent, maybe we, we think it ceases to be interpretable. But I think in a way that confuses the quality of an organizing intention and the fact of an organizing intention. Like there can be an organizing intention to an unsuccessful object we can maybe see what Stranger Things is doing in its third or fourth season, but we can say that doesn't work, or we can think it doesn't come together. I don't know how that means it's crossed the divide from being an art object to a commodity and one that no longer can be interpreted by us. I, I, I guess I, <laughs> I don't. When you brought up the question of like, why this has happened or what's going on that it has become bad. If you think about like how that's a different question, then why is the music the way the music is in relationship to the plot and the story and the characters? This latter question, that's an interpretive question. Like what's going on? What makes it the formal thing that it is? The question of why has it become the thing that it is, is a sociological question, historical question it's actually a categorically different kind of question. But okay, but let's say we get the we get the duffer. We're gonna go to intentional fallacy now, huh? <laughs> to, to just to bring it back to the example of succession, as you guys were talking, it does strike me as perfectly reasonable to wonder whether what Lisa is seeing in succession becoming more lowbrow, not as ambitious as it was in its first season, could be, on the one hand, the first season is an auteur bringing their work of art to life, but then as the series moves on, they may not be prepared for what where the show is going to go if it is indeed picked up for multiple seasons. But it also could be that the nature of HBO is changing, right? And that the Discovery Media merger means that some of the showrunners and uh, production team at Succession is, is planning to appeal to a different different set of executives and perhaps to follow the corporate turn towards, as, as they themselves put it, the middle America discoveries, choices about executives and showrunners at HBO re reflect that there is some sort of change potentially in the offing. And so I do wonder, like, is that a kind of intention, right? That the that the corporate culture and the corporate decision-making might be anticipated by the showrunners in the programming and they might be making arguments either 
with or against those decision-making apparatuses within the corporation. I'm trying to grapple with this idea that, that the way in which we interpret a show at the beginning might change. And I, I totally agree that obviously the conditions of production change. Does authorship somehow become more diffuse and even, as, as you suggested earlier, go away entirely at some point? Yeah, I, mean, I would imagine if at some point the, que- the primary question the showrunners are asking themselves when they're making it is how to keep it going. Put another way, does authorship kind of climb the chain of command so that in the earliest days of a production, you know, it's the showrunners who have the most power. There is a kind of auteur mode of production happening, but the more successful a show is, the more seasons it carries on, the more those decisions are being passed up through the sort of corporate architecture into the executive suite, even the shareholders. Yeah. See, I- it's interesting. Hypothesis. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) One way that was very helpful for me when I was writing the book on corporate personhood and, and meaning was that if you can think about intention as not being a cause, but as an explanation, then the key question, this comes from you know, Elizabeth Anscombe, but various other, Wittgenstein was talking about this too. The key question is expressions of intention are intentional actions are the ones to which the question why is given application. If you can ask why, why was this thing made the way it was? Why did they do that? Whoever did it, why is this thing this way and not that way? Then you're trying to get at intention, intentional actions in an aesthetic sense. There are all sorts of causal questions you can ask. How how was it made, right? Causally, how was it made? It's a, a different kind of question. That's not a, that's not a question of intentional meaning. You can ask those questions too, but you're going to get a different kind of answer. Where corporations are so tricky is that it's it can be very hard to figure out who, if anyone, would be giving that intentional answer as to why it was. That's why you can't go to the Duffer Brothers and say, <laughs> "Tell me the answer." So it's not simply the, the possibility of being able to ask the question, it's it's the answering of it. Right, the possibility of, of an answer, let's say, yeah. So Lisa, I guess the thing I don't understand is that it would seem to follow from that, and this is in the spirit of what Matt asked, that insofar as shows are falling under the purview of a controlling vision, an auteur, or a showrunner, whomever, we can ask the question why, and we could presumably get some kind of an answer back. And I understand that, like, in your model, it's not like the literalism of the answer. It's just, it, like, in other words, not that we ever really listen to poets or novelists or auteurs as to what their creations mean. But we believe, in a sense, that in theory, they could conceivably answer or affirm a version of the readings that we offer. What I don't get is, I would think that the moment that a corporation becomes an auteur for you would have to be the moment at which it ceases to be possible to think of them as bearing the kind of intention that you're talking about. Because if that's not the case, then there can't be a moment at which a collectively authored show ceases to have meaning. It's still going to be a collectively authored corporate show. It's still going to be available to the kinds of questions and answers you would ask of its first season, no matter how successful aesthetically it was. I think, I'm. what am I missing here, Lisa? Help me out. It goes back to the idea that the corporation is not stable. Right? That sometimes it can be represented by a single person with a single voice. 
and corporate authors can be represented by, at certain moments, Jesse Armstrong. It could be that succession sometimes could be the why question could be answered by Jesse Armstrong. The problem is that maybe by this, by season three, he is no longer going to be in the position to answer that question, right? And that has always been the problem with corporate authorship. It's why you get the legal system trying to figure out how to assign corporate blame for, for wrongs. And then they produce these things like this concept of like willful blindness. Even if you pretend not to know, you still could be responsible. And you also get these ideas of like collective knowledge that if you take everybody's individual knowledge and put them all together, then you'll get like the knowledge the corporation has. These are all attempts by courts to try to deal with the fact that these corporations are so unstable intentionally. In many moments, it will be unclear who is the person who could answer this question why. But sometimes there will be a possibility that someone can answer why, right? Sometimes you will have that moment. Lisa, how is that different from saying like sometimes a person will be self-present enough to be able to answer the kind of question you would ask of it. But sometimes that person is psychologically incoherent, dominated by their unconscious, what have you. Then they're not moments, doing intentional they things. They can't really. Yeah. In those moments, they are not being intentional. But, but I mean, if you say like, yeah, blah, blah, and I di didn't mean it. I mean, there are moments when uh, persons are not. The problem is that persons we give, I mean, this is like a Kantian thing, right? There are sometimes we give, we give persons the, the benefit of the doubt that they are their unified wholes. I mean, we've made that decision morally, culturally, you know, for at least 300, 400 years. We haven't done that yet for corporations. That was Lisa Siraganian and Michael Zillette. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash succession. Special thanks today to the Snarlin' Yarns, who have lent us their song, Don't Go Fishing, as this season's theme music. Find out more about them at thesnarlinyarns.com. Next week, we'll be back to talk about Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, as well as reality TV and the most recent merger in HBO's history which created Warner Brothers Discovery. This is the American Vanguard from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. So when your eyes do wander and your heart does ponder, don't you, sister, don't you even wonder when your hands do touch and your heart does flutter, don't you, sister, don't you care too much? Uh-huh. Cause you know where that'll get you dear I don't go fishing off the company There's nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Nothing but heartbreak where the boss from hell Love. Oh, oh, oh. 
It's a bunch of baloney and there ain't no mayo in the county. This stuff is love of them. I'm so tired of them. It's like I've been running a race. One of those ultra marathons in my sleep. I should have known when my computer started to grow horns. Thank you for the 17 emails. That picture of your new flip flops that don't flip. Thank you about never saying nothing to your darling back at home. But this kind of offset love, this offset love, displayed out, I should have known. Every time I get an email from you, it's like a smoke machine fires up. There's a little bit of smoke coming out of the sides. I can see it. Twinkling out of the ampersand This kind of office love Goes off like something back in the refrigerator What's the expiration date on yours and mine? Thank you for the 17 emails It feels like I'm at a laundromat There's only one other person here And she's coughing And she's washing her clothes go round and round And I say what do you see in that? And she says, every man's got a heart like a tumbleweed. Every woman's got a heart like a cactus. Oh, every man's got a heart like a tumbleweed. And every woman's got a heart. Nothing but heartbreak with a boss from hell. 